Hey there, language lovers. Shannon here to introduce this episode of the Language Hacking Podcast. Today, we're chatting with Julie Ferguson, who is an impressive language learner who studied five languages. She's severely deaf and legally blind, and she's come up with loads of creative strategies for learning. In this episode, we discuss accessibility and language learning and travel, what it's like learning a language abroad, and managing multiple languages. If you enjoy this podcast or this episode or both, we appreciate your reviews. They help other learners like yourself find the podcast and let us know what's working for you. You can leave us a review at languagehacking.com slash review. And as always, you can find show notes for this episode at languagehacking.com slash 39. Let's get right into our chat with Julie. Welcome to the Language Hacking Podcast from Fluent in Three Months. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Language Hacking Podcast. Today's guest, I have been very much looking forward to this episode for a while. This is uh, Julie, who I have had guest post on my blog and who I featured in my book because uh, she has such an inspirational story of um, both language learning in general, but also the personal challenges that she has had to overcome to be able to uh, make language learning a part of her life. So I can't wait to share her story with you. Thank you so much for joining us today, Julie. I was really happy to be invited. It's been really useful when I first found um, Fluent in three months. It gave me so many tips to get started off when I was rebooting my learning several years ago. So it's really nice to be able to pop back in every so often and contribute, hopefully, to other people's learning. Yeah, and that's the thing that we're trying to do here is to inspire other learners. So in your case, you have accessibility challenges that have... Uh, been a part of your life. And that's the, the theme that we'll be covering a lot today. So can you tell us a little bit about that um, from your perspective? Like what have been the challenges in your life and in language learning? Um, well, some people might be familiar with this already, but I was born with a hearing loss, a moderate hearing loss. Um, I was two years old when they realized that, but I was five when I finally got hearing aid. Um, there was a bit of a gap there, which made it really difficult for me to learn to speak English in the first place. So I needed a lot, a lot of speech therapy to be able to speak my native language, English. That affected my my ability to understand what people were saying around me, but I became a very good reader. But in high school, I had to start learning strategy for learning foreign languages, and that was quite a difficult um, thing to do. And as an adult, it's taken quite a lot of thinking to figure out what the best ways are to try and approach a new language. When I was 22, I also got diagnosed with a, a visual impairment, which means that um, I can't see very well, well, I can't see well in the dark at all. And I have increasing tunnel vision and I have a couple of other side issues that also affect my ability to read. So <laughs> hearing and vision, those are my, um, my difficulties. And you mentioned just a moment ago that you had started to get into language learning around high school level. Uh, what really kicked that off and how did, how did it evolve into what it is for you today? My first language lesson was a total disaster. 
Um, one of the first things I found out when I went into my first French lesson was I really need to see things written down. Um, this was a taster session when we were in primary school before we started high school, just to give us an idea of what high school would be like. And the French teacher decided to give us a nice easy lesson. She taught us the numbers 1 to 10. Uh, she had us doing simple maths in French using those numbers but she didn't write any of it down. So I was just sitting there like, what's happening? I don't understand. What are these words? What are these sounds? That was meaningless to me. And then she asked me a question and I burst into tears. So yeah, that was a bit of a disaster. So the, that's that's obviously very discouraging. So you've, you require a lot of self-motivation to get through these challenges. So when the times have been toughest, how have you pushed forward? The motivation usually comes from the goal that I want. So generally speaking, I do something because there's something I want to achieve. And if it's important enough, I'm going to do the work to do it and I will figure out a way to make it work. That's a pretty generic statement, but it applies to pretty much everything I do. Um, there's a lot of things I do that people are surprised by because, because I have a, because I have disabilities that people assume would not um, lead to that. So a lot of people are surprised that I work as a science teacher. A lot of people are surprised that I like doing knitting and embroidery, which are very visual crafts. Um, and yes, people are surprised by the fact that I do language learning. And there is a little bit of stubbornness and I'm going to prove you wrong. I don't enjoy it when people tell me, no, you can't, and they don't have an answer. And I ask, why not? As far as your learning methods themselves, you said that you needed to see things written down and that helps you a lot with your learning. What other techniques have you found, especially given that certain resources may not be accessible to you at all? What are some of the techniques that you use to learn your languages? First off, I'm a rather visual learner, which sounds a little odd given that I am legally blind, but when you grow up for 20 years with a hearing problem, you learn to rely on your eyesight more than your ears. So I don't tend to pay a huge amount of attention to my hearing. And that's something I'm trying to work on the, um, the last couple of years, just to put a bit more effort into what I listen to. The thing with these techniques is, like most people, I need to do a variety of things. You can't learn a language just by reading a textbook. But that's my starting point because I need to have something that my brain can hang the language on. I need those um, sounds to make sense, and for that, I need the letters. So Japanese, for example, it wasn't going to stick with me until I got my hiragana and my katakana sorted, because I needed to know how to pronounce things, and I preferred doing that in the kana than I do using the, sort of, the, the English letter version, the romanization. While people don't have to sign up for a language learning class, it's actually something that I find really useful. And that might sound odd given that I cried in my very first language learning class. But once I got over that part and I knew to ask the teacher to write things down, take things a little slower, language classes are really useful. And what I use those for are two main things. One, to get the basics of grammar sorted, to get that introduction to the language because I find it helps to have somebody explaining it, because I can build on that basic structure myself later on. I find it easier to have a teacher help and then self-study later, rather than trying to self-study the, the start of myself. 
if I make mistakes at the beginning, it's going to take a long time to correct them. But the teacher as well can help me with the, um, the part of the language I find most difficult. Because reading and writing is something that's easy, relatively easy for me. I like learning grammar. These are things I'm a bit nerdy when it comes to learning a language. But speaking and listening are the two areas I struggle with the most, and they are parts that I have to do work on. With speaking, I need somebody who's an expert who can explain to me how to pronounce things. And that's better coming from a teacher than from a native speaker, I've actually found. Because the if the teacher is a native speaker, much better, but I need someone who's experienced and used to explaining how to make the sound. Because quite often I've spoken to someone who's a native speaker of a language, and I'll say to you, how do you make that sound? And what they say to me is, this is what you say. And they just say it to me. And I'm like, okay, but what did you do with your tongue? Where is your tongue in your mouth? How are you shaping your lips? What, what air are you pushing through your mouth? And I'm going, speech therapy techniques, because this is how I learned to speak. And a teacher gives me more support with that. So that's one technique. That's, um, that's how I like to get started with a, with a language. Like I said, reading is relatively straightforward, but I do like audiobooks. And something that I'm wanting to work on in Japanese this year is the, um, I've downloaded an app called Satori Reader. It's got a selection of short stories. And some of those stories are collected into a larger a larger theme. So what I've picked to start off with is a story about a man from America who has married a Japanese woman, lives in Japan, and he's explaining some of the things that happens in his day-to-day life. And the first story is about um, it's about her obsession with making homemade miso. And I really enjoy cooking. And I like learning about um, day-to-day life. So for me, this is a good story to start with. And it continues later on with going to meet her family and doing other day-to-day things, going out for walks. And so I like this because it's going to give me day-to-day vocabulary. It is written by people who are native Japanese speakers, so it's going to be the correct, um, the correct grammar form. And it has audio. So I can listen to individual sentences on playback, I can listen to the whole thing going through from start to finish rather than the individual sentence. And you can set the text. If you know some kanji, you can tell the app which kanji you know so that it puts those in, but it doesn't put in kanji that you don't know yet so that you only see the kana for those. You can click on individual words, but you can also click on sentence to find out what a word means without having to nip out and get a dictionary. So the convenience of that is really good. And you can listen to it as many times as you want. So what I have is I have a text and the audio to go with it. I can listen to the audio without the text to practice listening just normally, or I can listen to it with the text to get used to, to get used to reading a little faster because reading speed is something that's important for me as well because I'd like to be able to watch TV with Japanese subtitles and I need to be able to read faster for that. So that's a technique. So I I would gather then that any resource that has both the written form as well as the audio is obviously going to make things vastly easier for you. Definitely. So like as as well as that, is there anything else like for anybody listening who who makes language learning material or who is a language teacher, how can they make their material more accessible so that it's less of a challenge? Like what? components of some courses have you found useful and what would you have more available if it were possible? 
Ebooks are definitely useful. You can download those, and if you have a visual impairment with an ebook, unlike a textbook, you can change the color of the pages, you can change the, the font, you can change the size of the font, and these are all things that would be important to be able to use the textbook more easily. Apps need to have a dark mode as well as a light mode. If you've got a website, then you need to run it through a screen reader because screen readers are, they literally read out everything that's on the screen. And if you don't code your website correctly, then the screen reader is going to sound very odd to the blind person. I don't personally use a screen reader, but I know people who do. And I know that the some websites are distinctly ropey with the way that they've been designed. And the best way to check that is to hire a disability consultant, someone who has the disability that you need to check, is this accessible for? Because otherwise, you're not going to get the right feedback. I've had um, I've had abled disability experts trying to give me the wrong support because they didn't understand what I needed. And this is why you have to go to a person with the disability. I would recommend that every time and pay them. There's a lot of disabled people get asked to give a feedback on things and to help make things better, and they don't get paid to do it as a voluntary thing. And we should be paid for our expertise. You had mentioned earlier that um, you enjoy learning languages in the classroom despite your first experience. And I know in a previous chat for you, you said that one of the reasons you enjoy learning in a classroom so much is because of the accountability. Can you go into a little bit of depth on that? (laughs) I'm a little bit lazy. (laughs) Yeah. So with the class, because of the structure, um, I like to say to a teacher, in this room, I must talk. And it's something that's really important. It is so easy to sort of hide behind your textbook and to sort of go, yes, madam, and to sort of hide a bit more. But it's sort of like, that's not what I'm there for. So it's like, make me talk. So there's accountability within the actual lesson. Um, but then there's also the preparation work for the next lesson, um, being given homework and knowing that you've got this number of weeks to get to this point and do all of the work that's required. I like that structure. It gives me a kick up the backside that I need from time to time. So as well as uh, actively getting into learning languages like Japanese, you have uh, what I really like about your story that is so interesting is that you are also someone who's traveled to other countries. So what was that experience like, especially when you would have to face both the language barrier and the accessibility barrier. And in a lot of cases, um, you don't necessarily, like you want to have an adventure, you want to have a sense of independence. So how have you managed to mix all of these together? That's a really comprehensive question. Up until I was 19, I traveled with my family exclusively. So it was quite easy to sort of step, step back and my parents were in charge. My parents were going to be in charge anyway. My dad was pretty enthusiastic about um, sorting things out and going and doing things. So when I was 19, I moved to Sweden for a year. So that was the first time I'd travelled by myself and I was going away for an entire year. So I decided to go big. (laughs) At that point, when I moved to Sweden, obviously I had the, the hearing impairment. It had got worse since I was a child, so there was that aspect but also I now had actually had some accessibility equipment. 
Um, so that was good for the lecture because the reason I went to Sweden was to study abroad for one year to take courses in biochemistry and then to come back to Scotland. So I had a I had a specialised microphone set up for lecture, but I didn't have other stuff beyond that. And that was an interesting year because one of the things I learned in Sweden was that I couldn't see very well in the dark. That was the first time people told me that. But it was another three years until I found out what the what the reason was for that. So I didn't know that there were things I needed to to do to to help myself. I just went charging through all of the things I did I was supposed to do without realizing there were things I needed more help with. The thing that mostly I found difficult when I was traveling at that point, because I went to different countries from there. When I was in Sweden, I visited Norway, Estonia, I went to Denmark and Germany as well. The thing I found hardest was being in travel centers, like train stations and places like that, with the announcement being made on the loudspeakers. Because loudspeakers are something I find difficult in any situation. And when you're in a traveling place, you've got a lot of background noise. The speakers aren't the clearest. And I'm just standing there wondering what they said. And that's where you have to start learning to say to the net person, what did they just say, please? <laughs> is this the correct train? Am I in the right place? Where is this going to? So these are... These would be sentences that I would prepare in the local language of any country I go to just to make sure that I, I know what's happening. However, 20 years later, I can now ask for a travel guide. And so that's something that's changed and that's something that I use every time I travel now because I didn't know that this was possible. And then when I found it was possible, I didn't use it at first because I didn't feel like I was disabled enough. And I was actually like, they're offering me this. Why am I not using this? Just use it. So traveling became a lot easier when I started asking for the the uh, accessibility support. So it would be you would go to the meeting point. One of the employees of the travel company would meet you. They show you where to go and get the train or the plane, things like that. And that that makes things go really smoothly. One of the things we also discussed in the past was one of the things that basically happens a lot when you're traveling and learning languages is that people tend to want to switch to English with you rather than keep the language in the local language. And given that you've traveled to Japan, you've lived in Sweden, you've gone other places, what are some of the techniques that you use to keep the conversation in the local language? First thing I do is to start talking in the local language, because if I start in Swedish or Spanish or Japanese, I'm more likely to get a response in those languages. Unless I'm in Japan and I'm talking to a Chinese person by accident and then I get an English response saying, I'm Chinese, not Japanese. And I'm like, okay, sorry. <laughs> that happened a lot. So yeah, start speaking in the local language. If you need them to repeat themselves, which I usually do, be prepared to ask, can you say that a little slower? I'm deaf. Can you say that again? But make it clear that you're asking them to repeat it because you're deaf, not because you don't understand the language. But that's something that's quite difficult to get people to understand sometimes because when you, if you ask someone to repeat something and it's obvious, it's obvious that I am not a native speaker because I have an accent. So what that means is if I just say, can you say that again? They switch to English. But if I start, if I say, I'm deaf, can you say that again? They're less likely to switch into English. I found that the, the place that I've been to where they've not done that is Spain and Japan. People to continue speaking in the language that I start in, in Spain and Japan. Other countries they try to switch to be more, to be helpful, whereas 
the people I've spoken to in Japan and Spain have respected the fact that I want to speak that language. One other part of your story that I find very inspirational is that um, you maintain your autonomy and your ability to to take care of yourself, but you're still not isolating yourself. So um, I find it very inspirational when uh, I heard about you traveling with your friend who had a disability and uh, together you were able to kind of uh, support one another. Can you tell me about that? The friend that you're referring to, she's my best friend from high school and she uses a wheelchair at the moment. She also has crutches, which means that she can get out of her wheelchair and walk short distances. But we've been traveling together. We've been traveling together since we were 22. When we first traveled together, um, Natalie actually did walk everywhere at that point. And the two of us make a really good team when we're traveling. Nowhere is 100% accessible. So if we're traveling, it's better if we go to bigger cities, things like that. But even there, there's going to be times where I'm standing sort of going, what just happened there? And she's explaining to me where people are, where the table is, because it's really dark and we've just gone into a cafe for a, for a sit down and a drink. And I can't see where I'm going because it's so dark inside. So she's guiding me. Whereas I'll do stuff like uh, lifting a wheelchair up three steps while she goes in with her crutches and then she's got her wheelchair again. So we work together and we get a lot of help from, from people in travel places as well when we're, when we're traveling. But something that, um, that quite often happens when you go into a tourist uh, attraction, Quite often, one person is disabled, so the other person gets in for free because they're a carer. And they sort of look at us and sort of go, you're caring for each other, aren't you? And we're like, yes, we are. And we both get in for free. That's a useful strategy for getting to experience new things. All right. um, So you've mentioned that you've learned Japanese, you've learned Swedish, you've learned some other languages. How do you keep those languages from interfering with one another? There is a certain amount of language interference, but it's not as much as I might expect. When I was in high school, I was doing French and Spanish for exam classes, and I was literally stepping from my French class to my Spanish class, and I had to make that switch in my mind. Five seconds later, I've got to do a different language, and then after that, I've got to switch back to to English. So I think I learned to put things into quite specific compartments, and as a teacher, I've continued that because I teach several, I teach biology and chemistry. I teach exam courses in both of these subjects, as well as the lower, lower level sciences. And I've got to remember all the time, what do I have to teach to this group? Because it's different from what I have to teach from this group. So I'm just really good at putting things into boxes. Where the interference happens is, um, I know most of the words in a sentence that I want to say. And there's one word missing, and I don't know it in, um, say, Japanese, so the Spanish word will pop into my head. Or I'm trying to speak Swedish, and the single word I can't remember in that sentence, it'll pop into my head from French. Not from English, from one of the other foreign languages. That's when I get the interference, and I've got to stop and sort of go, no, wrong language, and shove it back into the box again. So you talked a little bit um, about the challenges you faced initially when you got into languages. And um, as as time has progressed, what have been the 
challenges that you faced with the combination of having your visual problems um, and traveling alongside that? What, what kind of issues have you faced and how have you solved them that you think is unique to your situation? One of my major difficulties is that I can't see in the dark. So I usually have at least two torches on me everywhere I go. And so that I can use the torch. Quite often, street lights are not bright enough. And if I need to take a look at a train schedule or a bus schedule, I need to shine my own torch on it. When I'm moving around, I use a white cane now. I've been using a white cane for actually probably coming up for about 10 years. And the white cane has made a massive difference to the way that I'm able to move around. Um, I was quite surprised by how much I've adapted to using it. And it's, it's become part of my self-image. Whenever I think about myself doing something, uh, if I think about myself in a shop picking something up, in my imagination, I shift my white cane to the crook of my arm so that I can use my hands to pick up the, the thing I'm looking at. That is how much of a part of my body it's become. I was taught how to use it by a local rehabilitation specialist in Orkney. And she was pointing out to me things like, pay attention to the way that different surfaces feel. And it goes beyond the, the rumble strips that you feel when you're at a, um, about to cross the road or if you're at step. Have you ever noticed in train stations that you've got those particular strips that have got the texture on them? Well, these are for blind people. And my cane catches these. But I can also feel the difference between the pavement outside my house and the pavement that's round the corner because it's got two different tarmac surfaces. That is how sensitive a cane can be if you pay attention to the information you get from it. And the really good thing about it is I don't have to look at the ground anymore. I can sweep with my cane. I can look up. I can look around and I can make, I can make plan for what's a hundred meters in front of me instead of what's a meter in front of me. So a massive part of my freedom is using my white cane. I've had it break on me when I've been travelling. <laughs> when I went to Japan, I had a spare white cane in my bag, and that went everywhere. I had spares of quite a few things. My audiologist gave me a spare hearing aid for my worst ear so that I could function if my hearing aid broke, and I had my spare uh, white cane. Both times that my cane has broken when I've been travelling has actually been in airports. And the way that cane, the, my cane is put together are several metal cylinders that have got an elastic band in the middle so that you can pull it apart and fold it into a smaller piece. And the elastic band snapped and like it fell into five separate pieces onto the ground. And you basically sort of stand there and you look at the cane in pieces because I can see my cane, I'm not totally blind. And I'm sort of like, help! <laughs> And there is always someone who will come over and be like, where do you need to go? So cane and pieces on the floor. Someone will come over and ask immediately if I need help. And I'm like, please take me to special assistance and I'll take the pieces of my cane with me. <laughs> the thing about the cane is I will take the pieces with me because at the very least I can use a chunk of it as a symbol cane so that people can see it in my hand and they know I'm visually impaired. But I just don't have the whole cane. But I need someone to walk with me at that point. So it's just a case of going, where is the nearest person who can help me find them? So I, I really like the resilience that you've shown and that you've been able to achieve so much in your life uh, despite setbacks. So there may be people listening to this who have their own personal challenges, whether that be accessibility issues or other aspects that they feel prevent them from learning a language. 
And what would you say to somebody who, whatever it might be, uh, they feel like something is just going to prevent them to learn a language? What do you tell them? What would you tell them to give them some inspiration? It's okay to sit down and feel like a failure for five minutes. Give yourself time to feel that way because you need to acknowledge the fact that something's not working. If you try to bury the frustration and the emotion, it gets worse, it festers. So take the time to feel what you're feeling and then figure out how you can get past that. And figuring out how you can get past that, it sounds sounds easy, but it also sounds like it would be really hard. This is where you have to ask people. Do not be afraid to ask for help. That's what I think I would boil it down to. Feel the frustration and then ask someone to help you move on. I love that you are always willing to ask people for help because I think that's something that a lot of language learners or people in general are a little bit afraid to do. We feel like if we ask for help, it means like maybe we're not able to do something or maybe like we think too much of ourselves, but also what we tell ourselves we're afraid of is that people are going to judge us if we ask them for help and that they're going to make fun of us or they're going to look at us differently because we can't do something on our own. So have you ever struggled with feeling this way? And if you have, or even if you haven't, what would you say some things someone might be able to do to kind of break through that would be? I've definitely felt that way. um, Even when you're born with a disability, you learn to be resilient, yes, because you kind of have to, and you need people to support you and encourage you to do that but you also get bullied a lot. And that can make it really hard to be open about yourself and to be open about the help that you need. And when you're a teenager, there's a cool factor as well, where you're sort of, I need to be cool, which means asking for help doesn't happen because I'm cool. So yes, it's something that I struggled with, but it always I always go back to that lesson at high school, that first French lesson. Because if I had said, I'm having trouble, can you help? I would not have had that experience. I would not have burst into tears. I would not have felt so horrible. I would not have gone home and cried on my mum's shoulder and things would have been better. So it's a hard thing to learn. But if you if it's something you're struggling with, compare two situations where you didn't ask for help and a situation where you did ask for help and how that made you feel. Because asking for help has always made me feel better. It's always helped me move on to get to the place I need to be. That is amazing. I I would agree with that in so many aspects of life, regardless of the challenge somebody has. We could all do with asking for some help. And uh, I can definitely think back on times when I have asked for help and I haven't. And the times that I, I haven't and I faced a challenge have been dramatically more difficult. And that's, that's even without major challenges. So like, it's something that very universally can apply to people in language learning and in so many other aspects. And, um, of course, one thing that we do like to ask everybody who comes on the podcast is, um, because this is the language hacking podcast is what do you personally understand as language hacking? How, what would you define as language hacking? When I think of the word hacking, I think of computer hacking, where you basically shove your way into a piece of code and figure out what it does so that you can make it do what you want. And language hacking, languages are code. It's code for 
talking about what we're thinking so that other people understand what we're thinking. So hacking is what is that code and how can I use it for what I need to communicate? There are sort of subsets of that because I also think of hacking as I've learned Swedish, I don't know Danish and I don't know Norwegian, but I can understand written Danish and Norwegian because of my Swedish knowledge. So for me, that's an aspect of hacking. I have this code that I know and I can use it to interpret other code and it saves a bit of trouble on time. My brother's going to love that analogy. <laughs> My brother's a computer programmer. <laughs> if you don't mind sharing, what are some of your upcoming projects? What are some of your language learning plans for in the near future? Well, originally, I was actually thinking about signing up to do uh, a level one class in Gaelic because I'd like to go back and refresh that. But I've had to, I've had to change my mind on that one. And I'm going to be a little topical here because um, we obviously have the coronavirus pandemic happening at the moment. And I'm really busy because not only am I working as a teacher, we keep swinging from teaching in the classroom to online learning, which is quite different from teaching in the classroom to that take time for me. But also I do, I do voluntary work for disability activism. And currently, I'm the chair of the Scottish Trade Union Congress Disabled Workers Committee. And as part of that, I'm feeding into, um, I'm giving feedback on supporting disabled workers during the pandemic in terms of accessibility and the support that we need. So that's taking quite a lot of my thinking time as well. So what I'm looking at focusing on is maintaining my current knowledge and working on my Japanese reading slash listening. The, ma- the way I'm maintaining current knowledge is I'm using Facebook and Twitter to have bite-sized um, chunks of reading for French, Spanish, um, Swedish. And Twitter and uh, Facebook are really good for that. If Facebook friends um, that I know from traveling and just random people on Twitter that talk about topics I'm interested in, but I've chosen to do it in a different language so that I can try and get new vocabulary, but also continue working on my current vocabulary. The main thing I'll be working on is improving my Japanese reading and listening. But I've also asked my rehabilitation specialist here in Orkney to help me start learning Braille because my eyesight loss is progressive and I'm going to need something that's going to help me back up being able to read. And I'd like to have Braille for that. So Braille is not a language. Um, It's a tactile code that um, languages can be translated into. So if I learn Braille, I should be able to continue reading in European languages. And Braille is also used in Japanese. So if I can learn Japanese Braille, uh, I would be able to continue reading in Japanese, hopefully, as well. So that's a sort of long-term goal to make sure that I can continue learning and reading and you're going to definitely uh, show the world that you're a lifelong uh, learner and that's a, an inspirational story and i'm so appreciative that you've uh, been able to share it with us today on the podcast and of course thank you so much for all the other times in the past you've shared your story with my readers it's uh, it's been absolutely fascinating and i'll um, make sure that anything you've mentioned will be in the uh, show notes today for people So thank you so much for coming and uh, hopefully we'll be in touch again soon. You're very welcome. I hope you have a good day. 
of each episode, Benny and I like to share a key takeaway, something you can immediately put into practice in your own learning. And something that stood out to me in what Julie said was about how she overcame her resistance to asking for help. And I think that's something we can all do a little more of. So this week, aim to ask for help at least one time you wouldn't normally ask. Let us know how it goes in the comments for this episode at languagehacking.com slash 39. Until the next time and happy language learning. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Language Hacking Podcast. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you found this episode valuable and want to help us out, please leave a review at languagehacking.com forward slash review. The Language Hacking Podcast is presented by Benny Lewis and Shannon Kennedy and produced by David Sobel with special thanks to the Fluent in Three Months team. Theme music was written and performed by Shannon Kennedy. Find the show notes at languagehacking.com forward slash podcast. Thanks for listening and happy language learning.